So, uh, welcome everyone to the final Catholic Theology Research Seminar of the term. I'm very pleased to see you all. It shows a uh, very strong ethos that we're all here right at the end of the term. And we will continue on the celebration of the Christmas due for those who've signed up afterwards in um, the Victoria in the so, really, really delighted and grateful to have Dr. Billy Crozier with us today. There's, there's this frequently said thing that Catholic social teaching is the church's best kept secret. And I think the CCS's best kept secret is, is the kind of dynamo of intellectual power that is Billy Crozier, who, who hides away in the shadows much of the time. But Billy has really generously agreed to come out um, and help us on this occasion when the person who was originally scheduled to give a paper today had to pull out. So Billy is a graduate at, am I right in thinking, BA, MA, and PhD of this uh, department. He's been closely associated with um, Center for Catholic Studies throughout, um, and some of his mentors are present in that corner of the room. So we're also very grateful to those who have helped developed this uh, intellectual dynamo hidden in the secret heart of the Center for Catholic Studies. Um, so Billy is helping us out in two ways. One is by replacing a paper that would have happened, and the other is by giving us a bit of a Christmas treat, which is to say a paper that will not be a standard academic paper, but is written in a slightly different form, which does not mean there are not deep theological ideas within it. But for once, we will actually understand it. So, <laughs> so we're really looking forward to a slightly lighter, more engaging, um, less footnoted type of piece of work um, that Billy will give tonight, which is called The Quince Made Sweet, Love and Suffering in St. Bonaventure's Tree of Life. Thank you for that introduction. And after that, all I can say is I'm <coughs> prepared to be disappointed. <laughs> um, I think the, the prefer, to echo what Karen has said, this isn't a standard academic paper. Um, it was originally given to some Franciscan sisters uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, so if you can put yourself into the mind of an 80-year-old nun with incipient Alzheimer's, this is about <laughs> the level, <laughs> level, your level. Um, Thank you for having me. Um, Karen tells me that the original speaker was going to speak on uh, sex and kenosis. So if you've turned up for sex and kenosis, I'm very sorry. Um, it's just love and suffering. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I shall begin. A few years ago, I planted two quince trees at the bottom of my garden. My reason for doing so is that I have a rather sweet tooth and a particular fondness <coughs> for quince jelly. The latter, if you have ever tried it, is not only very fragrant, but also rather rich. Now each year, the young quince trees have bloomed, though due to their age, they did not bear any fruit. Last year, however, to my surprise, 
the young trees bore a handful of fruit. The fruit was large and golden, and very like the blossoms which the trees themselves produce, very handsome and appealing to look at. When it came to late autumn, just after the first frost, I picked the quince and with a sense of pride took them to the kitchen to get ready for cooking. All the quince which I had picked were intended for making quince jelly. I could not resist trying to take a bite from one of them prior to cooking. I picked the fruit which looked the most ripe and golden and I took a bite. To my disappointment, it was not a pleasant experience. <laughs> Far from the sweet and fragrant taste which I had come to associate with quince jelly, the fruit itself was extremely dry and bitter. Moreover, it left what can only be described as an unpleasant aftertaste in my mouth, which it has to be said lingered for some while. Now, the reason why I recount this story is that it offers something of a parallel for how many undergraduate students feel when they first come across medieval spirituality. While many of them have never encountered medieval piety before, what inevitably happens each year is that a good proportion of them, upon taking their first glance at the spirituality of the Middle Ages, were very much in love with it. They become intoxicated with what they see as the drama, diamondism, the beauty of medieval spirituality. In particular, what seizes their imagination is the confidence with which the medieval writers express themselves and adhere to the Christian worldview. Indeed, for some more traditionally minded students, what catches their attention is the sharp gulf which they perceive to exist between the hyperrealism of medieval spirituality, that is to say, its unswerving emphasis upon the omnipresence of God, the church, and the mystery of the supernatural in our daily lives. And what they see is the somewhat tame or lukewarm elements of contemporary spirituality and theology. <coughs> As one rather forthright student put it to me, I really love this medieval stuff because it's real spirituality and real theology. The medieval church had an unswerving grasp of the reality of God. To which a rather more forthright friend added, yes, this modern systematic theology is rubbish. It's concrete proof that modern systematic theologians in the church has got spiritual Alzheimer's. Now, while some students may find medieval spirituality appealing on account of its confidence and traditionalism, for the majority, many of whom, it has to be said, have no spiritual background or denominational affiliation at all. What appeals to them most is the heavy emphasis within medieval spirituality on the imminence of God's love. That is to say, how for the medievals, in stark contrast to our own age, God is radically present within the world and participates in its daily workings. The world for the medievals, in other words, is dripping with grace. 
Each creature, indeed each and every aspect of our own lives, offers the possibility of a sacramental encounter with God. Indeed, one gets the impression from some of the greatest medieval thinkers, and I'm thinking in particular here of St. Clair and St. Francis, that God is so close that one could almost reach out and touch him. In light of this, it should come as no surprise that when they encounter Franciscan spirituality, many of the students inevitably take a shine to it. I can say that the canticle of Brother Sun is always a great hit in the classroom. The notion that creation is a theophany of divine glory, a hymn book, if you will, is something which at least it seems to me, really speaks to young minds and their desire for spiritual nourishment. Now it is, of course, always a great pleasure to see how many students become enthralled with medieval spirituality and theology. However, each year I wonder whether I should begin the course with something of a spiritual hazard notice. Something along the lines of <coughs> warning not everything is as it seems. You see, what inevitably happens is that following their initial enthusiasm for medieval spirituality, some students start to find themselves having problems. They love that side of medieval religion, which is all about love. But when they are asked to dig a little deeper and explore how the medieval emphasis on love is always closely intertwined with a very strong emphasis on human frailty, and in particular, the harsh reality of suffering, they start to become a little unsettled. The reason I say this, of course, is that while the medievals do indeed place a great emphasis on God's love, beauty and joy, they also lay a very strong at times perhaps uncomfortably strong, emphasis on human suffering and, of course, death. Indeed, what seems to trouble some of the students most is the way in which the medieval see joy and suffering, peace and pain, life and death, are so intricately intertwined that one cannot have the other, that one cannot have one without the other. If you were to pick up some of the more modern accounts of medieval spirituality that are currently available, you will quickly find that this uneasiness about medieval spirituality is by no means confined to undergraduate theology students. It is, in fact, quite a common feature of contemporary, contemporary literature, even that produced by some very eminent theologians. For example, when asked what he thought of the medieval account of Christ's passion, specifically the claim that our salvation was secured through Christ's death upon the cross, the great 20th century Catholic theologian Edward Schielebeck responded that he thought it was nothing more, and I quote, than a sadistic and bloody myth. These sentiments in turn have been echoed more recently by figures like Jared O'Connor's. 
For a Collins, the medieval account of atonement, particularly those accounts grounded in the thought of St Anselm, not only theologically unpalatable, but morally and spiritually abhorrent. Indeed, after reading some of the more popular texts on medieval Christianity, one can easily be left with the impression that the medieval church was driven by two things. On the one hand, a visceral fear of hell, and on the other, a deeply perverse adoration of suffering. Medieval spirituality, or so we are told, is all about blood and guts and very little else. Perhaps the clearest, indeed perhaps the most infamous, expression of this belief is to be found in the writings of the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Often described <coughs> as the father of atheism and wrongly viewed as having promoted a cult of nihilism, Nietzsche is most famous today for his radical claim, God is dead. Although the latter is certainly his most eye-catching slogan, what is the most striking aspect of it, of Nietzsche's philosophy, to my mind at least, is his belief that Christianity is a religion which makes suffering the goal of human life. According to Nietzsche, Christianity, particularly medieval Christianity, views suffering, specifically self-imposed suffering, i.e. denial and ascetic practice, no sex thank you, we're Christians essentially, as not only the true vocation of the Christian life, but the very highest virtue. God demanded that Christ suffer horribly, therefore we should idolise suffering and, to put it crudely, seek it out, at least on Nietzsche's reading. Suffering on Nietzsche's reading of Christian faith is thus the way to salvation. Indeed, for Nietzsche, medieval spirituality proved beyond doubt that Christianity, far from being a faith about love and life, is in fact preoccupied with death and suffering, particularly that of others. As proof of this, Nietzsche pointed to the example of St Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican, who, so Nietzsche delights in reminding or telling us, argued that the happiness of the blessed in heaven is made all the more delectable by their ability to watch the damned in hell endure the eternal torment of sulphur and fire. Now, in a little talk like this, I want to look at one of those texts which is often seized upon by those who like to characterise medieval piety as a faith which both celebrates suffering and views it as the key to salvation, <coughs> namely the second book of Bonaventure's Tree of Life. Next to texts such as Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love, the second book of Bonaventure's Tree of Life constitutes one of the most sustained, and it has to be said, unflinching medieval, medieval reflections on Christ's passion and its place within our redemption. Indeed, I would go so far as to argue that the second book of the Tree of Life is one of the most potent meditations on Christ's crucifixion that has ever been written. 
At no point when meditating on the cross does Bonaventure pull his punches. He hides nothing from us. Instead, he confronts us squarely with the reality of Christ crucified. Indeed, so vivid is Bonaventure's discussion of Christ's suffering, that even for people who are very familiar with his theology, his, medi his meditation on Christ's passion in the book two of The Tree of Life is still something of a difficult read at times. Now, in a short talk such as this, it is not possible to drill down very deeply into the complex theology of love and suffering, which is at work in Bonaventure's text. Such an endeavour, although likely to yield much fruit, would take a much longer conversation than the current one. However, what I would like to do is to think about some of the themes which are at work within the second book of The Tree of Life. In particular, I would like to consider what it reveals about Bonaventure's understanding of suffering, particularly what meaning and value he attributes to it in relation to Christ's act of satisfaction for our sin and our redemption upon the cross. What I hope to show is that far from being a text which makes pain and death the driving thrust of our redemption, the tree of life, pretty much like every other medieval mainstream text which deals with Christ's passion, offers us a very careful and remarkably mature understanding of the place which suffering occupies in our lives. In particular, it points us to a rather subtle, and so I think at least, a very mature response to the very hard question of how we as Christians should seek to respond to the all too painful wounds which suffering, particularly that of our loved ones, opens up in our hearts. Before proceeding, we should make clear a couple of points. The first, and perhaps the most important, is that in the second book of the Tree of Life, Bonaventure is not seeking to resolve the problem of suffering. The Tree of Life, let me be clear, is not a theodicy, i.e. a text designed to explain why suffering and evil exists. Instead, insofar as it pertains to the question of suffering, the Tree of Life is doing something very different to a theodicy. It does not reflect on why suffering exists, nor does it seek to justify the place of suffering in our lives. Instead, its focus is ultimately far more pragmatic. What this is, I shall address towards the end of our conversation. The second point is that Bonaventure's meditation on Christ's suffering in the Tree of Life should not be seen as a standalone event as even a cursory reading of Bonaventure's wider theological writings will reveal, he wrestles with the difficult question of suffering and evil, both that of Christ's suffering and ours, at several points in his vast literary corpus. The Tree of Life, to put it another way, represents only the tip of a far larger iceberg. As such, if it is to be properly understood, as I will indicate in a bit, it should be read in relation to Bonaventure's wider theology, particularly his distinctive theology of satisfaction. 
The third point which needs to be noted is that Bonaventure's Tree of Life, just like all medieval spiritual texts, has something in common with the Ignatian spiritual practice of inviting us to actively inhabit and live within the scriptures which we read. Thus, as we will see, Bonaventure invites us to inhabit the space of Christ's passion itself and to immerse ourselves <coughs> in each stage of it. In what follows, I will do three things. First, I will look at Bonaventure's description of the crucifixion itself. In particular, I will focus upon the particularly vivid account of Christ's suffering which Bonaventure offers us, and how, in turn, he seeks not only to place us at the foot of the cross, but to make us active, active witnesses and participants in the story of the crucifixion itself. Second, I will consider Bonaventure's discussion of the role of the Virgin Mary in Christ's Passion. What we will see, or so I hope, is that for Bonaventure it is Mary who is very much the key to understanding the place of suffering and love in Christ's Passion. Indeed, for Bonaventure, we cannot approach the mystery of Christ's redemptive act on the cross unless we place ourselves in Mary's shoes and view the cross through her eyes. Third, building upon this, I will briefly outline how the Tree of Life understands the role of suffering and love in the lives of ordinary Christians, and how, through the creative tension between suffering and love, we are made active participants in Christ's redemptive act. Let us start then at the deep end, that is to say, what Bonaventure has to say about Christ's passion itself. As even a cursory glance at the second book of the Tree of Life reveals, it is not only vivid in its description of the passion, but it is also very methodical in its approach. In keeping with the Franciscan emphasis upon Christ's humanity, Bonaventure makes us take a good hard look at each of the different stages of the passion which the Gospels describe. Thus he begins with an extremely vivid account of Christ's betrayal by Judas and his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then proceeds to describe Christ's appearance before Pilate and his subsequent condemnation to death. The heart of Book 2, however, is given over to Bonaventure's description of Christ's crucifixion and death itself. Following the widespread medieval belief that since Christ possessed no sin, his flesh, like that of Adam's prior to the fall, was far softer and far more vulnerable than our own, Bonaventure asks us to reflect upon how Christ's body was fixed to the cross in an especially harsh and cruel manner. Christ, so he tells us, was stretched out on the cross in the same way that a piece of calfskin is stretched out on a wooden frame so as to make a parchment. He writes, And bearing the cross for himself, he went forth to the place called the skull. There they stripped him to the skin, covered him with a poor loincloth. They threw him roughly upon the wood of the cross and pushed and pulled and dragged and stretched him back and forth as they would stretch a hide. They pierced him with sharp nails attaching cruelly lacerated body to the cross, his hands and feet. 
Bonaventure then tells us how Christ, unfixed to the cross, suffered the indignity of being placed between two thieves. He notes, however, that even while in his greatest emotional and physical pain, Christ still showed love to the thief who placed his trust in him. We are then asked to contemplate how Christ, gasping for breath and parched with thirst, was forced to drink bitter gall, and finally, how, as he died, Christ suffered the indignity of being pierced by the soldier's lance, whose point, Bonaventure notes, reached to Christ's very heart itself. It is this piercing of Christ's side which Bonaventure finds particularly important. For him, like so many of his contemporaries, the wounding of Christ's side, and in particular his heart, is of great spiritual significance. On the one hand, the blood and the water which flowed from Christ's wounded chest served to symbolise the birthing of the Church's sacraments, specifically the Eucharist. On the other hand, Christ's wounded side provides us with an opening to Christ's heart itself. Indeed, picking up a theme which he talks about in great detail in The Perfection of Life, Bonaventure tells us that the opening within Christ's side serves to provide a refuge for our own hearts, one in which they can not only find the harbour from the rough waters of this world, but also unite themselves mystically with Christ's own heart. He writes, Arise, therefore, beloved of Christ. Be you like the dove that makes her nest in the mouth of the hole in the highest place. There, as a bird that has found a nest, do not cease to keep watch. There, like the turtle dove, hide the offspring of your chaste love. There apply your mouth to draw waters with joy out of the Saviour's fountains. For this indeed is the river rising from the midst of paradise, which divided into four branches and flowing out into the hearts and flowing into devout hearts waters the whole earth and makes it fertile. This imagery of our hearts seeking refuge in Christ's own wounded side is certainly a very visceral one. It is one which many students, and indeed many readers of the Tree of Life in general, find hard to digest and understand. Yet it is, as we will see, one which is very important to understanding Bonaventure's thinking on the role which our own love plays in letting us participate in Christ's satisfactory act. I'll say more on this in a moment. This all brings us to a very important point, which, need, which needs to be heavily underlined if we are to make any sense of how Christ's passion is presented within the Tree of Life. Like so many of his contemporaries, for Bonaventure, what makes the cross the instrument of our salvation is not the suffering which Christ endured through it, nor indeed the violent death which it, he incurred but rather something far more positive. All too often, we make the error of reading late medieval accounts of the atonement, particularly those 
which work within the framework of St. Anselm's theory of satisfaction, of which Bonaventure, I should emphasize, is very definitely one, in light of the somewhat later and very different Reformation doctrine of penal substitution. But very crudely, this theory maintains that the cross represents a moment of divine catharsis. That is to say, an event in which God, offended by human sin, directs his wrath solely at Christ, who, although innocent, took upon himself the weight of human guilt and error, and thus acted as a substitute for fallen humanity. Thus, to put it boldly, according to penal substitution, it is Christ's suffering and death which procured our salvation. This is so because through Christ's spilled blood, the punishment due to humanity was meted out to the punishment due to humanity was meted out to Christ, and God's, God's righteous anger was placated. Bonaventure and his medieval contemporaries, however, work with a very different model of satisfaction. For them, what makes the cross salvific is not the suffering or the death which it entailed, though these, of course, are still bound up with the mystery of redemption, but rather the love, or to use the correct medieval term, charity, caritas, and freedom with which Christ went to the cross. Thus, in contrast to the Reformation thinkers, for Bonaventure and his medieval colleagues, it is love, not suffering, freedom, not punishment, which is the cause, the ratio, of our redemption. Once we grasp this fact, how we understand what the Tree of Life has to say about Christ's passion takes on a very different hue. While Bonaventure may indeed confront us with the very difficult reality of Christ's crucifixion, his reason for doing so is not to suggest that Christ suffered to placate divine anger, nor is it to suggest that it was Christ's torture and death which brought about our redemption. Rather, his reason for doing so is to remind us of Christ's deep love for us, having embraced such pain on our behalf. For Bonaventure, it was the light of love, not the dead weight of sin and punishment, which led Christ to Golgotha. It was love, not nails, which fixed Christ to the cross. And finally, it was love, not death, which turned the keys of heaven and unlocked the doors for us. But simply, love and love alone is the instrument which Christ used to wrought our salvation and make the face of God known to us. Although Christ and his passion may be the principal focus in the second book of the Tree of Life, it is important to note that there is another figure features prominently in this section. This, of course, is Mary herself. Striking as it may seem, but for Bonaventure, it is Mary who, through her loving tenderness for her son, provides us with the lens whereby we should read the second book of the Tree of Life. I said earlier that Bonaventure, rather like St Ignatius, composed the Tree of Life in such a way that he wishes us to imagine ourselves as active participants in the events of Christ's passion. Well, for Bonaventure, it is Mary who provides the space, as it were, whereby we are able to inhabit this set part of the tree of life. 
We are called, in other words, to walk in Mary's shoes, and to view Christ's passion through her eyes. Once we grasp this truth, how we read the second book of the Tree of Life takes on an entirely new flavour. The reason, of course, is that we no longer see Christ from our own limited perspective, but rather through the eyes and the heart of the person who loved him most, his mother. Critical to understanding how Bonaventure expects us to walk in Mary's footsteps is recognising how Mary herself is understood within Bonaventure's theology as a whole. For Bonaventure, as for many of his fellow Franciscans, Mary is no mere theological aside or quaint form of spiritual direct, uh, of decoration to the mystery of our redemption. Rather, Mary is an intrinsic and indeed active participant. Mary, so Bonaventure tells us, is Christ's co-worker in the miracle of salvation. Not only does she say yes to Christ to bear the Christ child in her womb, thereby making the incarnation itself possible, but she is also actively involved in Christ's passion itself. Mary, so Bonaventure reminds us, walked with Christ to Golgotha and stood beside him on the cross until the very end, refusing to leave her son, as so many of his male disciples had done. Indeed, at one point, Bonaventure even seems to imply that Mary herself was involved in carrying her dead son to his tomb and washing his corpse. What is crucial to note, however, is that for Bonaventure, Mary's involvement in Christ's passion runs far deeper and is thus far more potent than simply being a faithful witness to the cross. Instead, Mary herself is actively, or perhaps I should say mystically, incorporated within Christ's redemptive act itself. Crucial to understanding how this is so is the role which love and suffering play in uniting Mary to her son upon the cross. Now on first inspection, one could be forgiven for thinking that Bonaventure imagines Mary's participation in Christ's redemptive act as being one primarily realised through the bond of suffering. After all, Bonaventure repeatedly, and often with great poetic vividness, emphasises the immense pain which the Virgin suffered as she watched her only son suffer and die a truly horrific death. O Virgin blessed, he writes, what tongue could utter, what mind could grasp the heaviness of your sorrow? You were present at all these events, standing by and taking part in every possible way. Indeed, Bonaventure goes still further. He underscores the suffering of Mary's heart by meticulously reminding us of how the brutality of the cross contrasted and actively offended the depth of her tender motherly love for her son. He writes, O Virgin blessed, this sacred and most holy flesh you had so chastely conceived, so tenderly nourished and sustained with your milk, so often held in your young arms and kissed with your lips, so often gazed upon with your bodily eyes, you now see torn by the blows of scourging, 
then pierced with the barbs of the thorns, then struck with a reed, then battered by hands and fists, then transfixed with nails, then attached to the wood of the cross and opened with a spear, then mocked in all possible ways, and finally made to drink vinegar and gall. Crucially, however, if we dig a little deeper, particularly when we frame Bonaventure's discussion of Mary's of Mary and the Tree of Life against the backdrop of, of his belief that Christ made satisfaction for sin, not through suffering, his suffering, but rather through his love, we begin to see that for Bonaventure, what serves to ground Mary's incorporation into Christ's redemptive act is not the depth of her pain, but the strength of her love. It is the love between mother and son, the love between two hearts bound together in fidelity to one another and in turn fidelity to God, which in Bonaventure's opinion allows Mary not only to witness but to participate in the redemption act of Christ, Christ's redemptive act itself. As Christ made satisfaction for human sin by offering perfect love to the Father, so Mary also offered love to the Father. Through her love, her heart was bound to Christ's own wounded heart. In a quasi-sacramental manner, her heart entered into Christ's side at the moment of his death and was united to Christ's own heart in a spirit of loving compassion and faithful solidarity. At its most basic level, therefore, for Bonaventure, what lies at the core of the cross and God's salvific activity among us is not a communion of suffering, still less a communion of hearts governed by pain and death and sorrow, but rather a communion of compassionate, faithful, honest and unflinching love. What makes Bonaventure's thinking here all the more potent at this point is his emphasis upon the fact that Mary stands for us. Like Mary, Bonaventure tells us, we are called not only to walk with Christ to the cross, but to place our hearts next to his. We are called, as the quote that I read out earlier implied, to let our hearts find communion within Christ's heart, in his wounded side. Moreover, through such love, we ourselves, like Mary, are actively incorporated into, and this serve to support Christ's atoning act of satisfactory love. We, like Mary, are called to be active participants in the story of our own salvation. The implications which this has for our understanding of the role of suffering and love in our own lives are obvious and profound. The key point which needs to be underscored, however, is the fact that for Bonaventure, just like all his mainstream medieval contemporaries, it is not our misfortunes nor our sufferings which render us active participants in the story of our redemption and the story of the cross, but rather our love. Ours is a faith, so Bonaventure tells us, in which suffering is something which both God incarnate and humanity share. Yet what truly lies at the heart of the communion between God and his people is the bond of love. 
It is, as book three of the Tree of Life goes on to make clear, love not suffering, which transfigured the wounds of Christ and raised him from the dead. It is love which unites and illumines the paradox between the visceral trauma of Good Friday and the unspeakable joy of the discovery of the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? I began by recounting the story of the quince. And how it provides something of an analogy of the experience which many young theology students and indeed most Christians have upon first encountering medieval spirituality. On the surface, it looks and smells beautiful, but take a bite and one is left with something of an unexpected, quite sharp taste. The reason for this is that for the medievals, unlike our own age, love and suffering, both in reality and in spiritual reflection, are so intricately entwined that talking about one necessarily involves talking about the other. For this, for us, this comes as something of a surprise. Moreover, it has helped feed into the widespread assumption that medieval piety confuses love with suffering, and makes the latter, not the former, the axis of Christian life. As I have, as I have said, for many modern readers, texts such as Bonaventure's Tree of Life show an unhealthy fascination with suffering. And as I hope to have shown, while medieval writers like Bonaventure may not shy away from underscoring the harsh reality of Christ's crucifixion, it is simply not correct to view their honesty as constituting some form of sacralization of suffering. For Bonaventure, <coughs> it is love not suffering, which is the principal focus of Christ's passion. It is always love, not suffering, which is the engine of our salvation. I want to re end by returning to something which I noted earlier, but which deserves to be re briefly reflected upon. I told you earlier that in the Tree of Life, Bonaventure does not seek to explain why suffering exists. And I stand by this claim. Crucially, however, what Bonaventure does do is something far more subtle and, or so I would argue, far more theologically defensible. Through his underscoring of the primacy of love over suffering, Bonaventure offers us a lens whereby we can at least find the courage and the solace needed to approach the mystery of suffering, even if we cannot hope to fully understand it. This lens is what Bonaventure, perhaps better than any other medieval thinker, save St Francis himself, grasps and holds up to us in the tree of life. The fact that at the heart of the Christian of Christ's passion is the relationship between two people bound together in love, a mother and her son. As Mary was the first person to behold and kiss the face of God incarnate on that very first Christmas day. So Mary's face 
although worn weary with suffering and anxiety, was the last icon of love which Christ himself saw on Good Friday before he died. It is this, the wordless gaze between two hearts bound together in love, that the mystery of suffering in our redemption is suspended. It is in this, held as it is by God's gentle hands, that love has its final victory over death. Moreover, as Bonaventure himself recognised, for our theology to attempt to go further and to say more would be for, to fall into error. Instead, we must fall silent and let wordless love speak.